This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Buddy Holly, Ben-Hur, Space Monkey, Mafia, Hula Hoop, Castro, Ezaliza No Go, You Too, Not the Band, But a plane, Katie, that's a spy plane, so may not officially exist at all. Spy Plane. Hello and welcome to episode 75 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that explores post-war history and all the reasons why the world is like it is today, all done through the lyrics of a number one smash hit from the legend that is Billy Joel. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, are we ready for the next part of our beautiful adventure? We are so ready, Tom, because today we are talking about a letter and a number that together equal one of the biggest crises of the Cold War era. I'm talking about you 2 not the pop band, but <laughs> the spy plane. Yeah, you're spot on, Katie. So this is the American spy plane, the U-2, which was shot down in May 1960. It led to one of the great escalations of the Cold War. And also, I think, Katie, when you look at how things were moving between West and East, between the USA and the USSR at this point, you sort of wonder if this hadn't happened, if we hadn't had this sudden crisis how things may have turned out differently. It feels like one of those real turning points in the big arc of history that Billy has introduced us to. And you know what's really interesting is that now that we're creeping into the 1960s, we're now in a point in history where a lot of the participants and people who are related to the participants of these events are still living and can share their stories with us. So that's why I'm excited to introduce today's guest. We are thrilled and honored to welcome Gary Powers Jr. He is the son of U2 spy plane pilot Gary Powers and the founder of the Cold War Museum. Welcome, Gary. Hello. Good morning. Good to be on. Let's get a baseline understanding for the U2. What was so gosh darn snazzy about this plane? Let's talk about the specs. It was billed as unshoot downable. Well, back in 1955, after uh, Khrushchev said no to Eisenhower's open skies policy, Eisenhower, General LeMay, Alan Dulles of the CIA all got together and had to figure out how can we get information on our enemy. They're talking about missiles. They're talking about bombers. We have to do something to get information out of the Soviet Union to find out their strengths and weaknesses. Back in the Cold War, it was very hard to get a ground agent into the Soviet Union. It was a closed society, very difficult to get somebody on the ground going from city to city. So they came up with this idea with the help of Kelly Johnson from the U-2 Lockheed Skunk Work Program to create this first quote-unquote spy plane, the U-2. It could soar at altitudes above 70,000 feet for about nine hours, taking photographs, very detailed photographs for the time, from that altitude of military bases, industrial complexes, and other strengths and weaknesses of our adversaries. It looks, Gary, 
like it was incredibly hard to fly. Your father was clearly an ace pilot, but I've read things that there was only a sort of a 12 mile an hour difference between the maximum speed of this plane and the stall speed. So you had a really, really narrow window as a pilot in which to fly it. That's correct. Uh, that is known as the coffin corner. And it would happen at altitudes above 70,000 feet where the stall speed and breaking the speed of sound would almost converge. So the pilots had to navigate in addition to keeping this plane within the required seven knots before either stalling or breaking apart. Obviously, your dad had the right stuff to execute this mission. Why was he chosen? What was his background? Well, all of the original U-2 pilots that uh, were recruited by the CIA had to meet certain qualifications. X number of hours in a single jet engine, certain mental and psychological profiles, basically all American uh, a person. Dad was chosen in the second group of pilots. Uh, there were about 24 pilots total in the original CIA groups, A, B, and C. One group stationed in Turkey, one stationed in Japan, uh, another group stationed in either England or Germany. And then they would rotate to different bases depending on what missions needed to be performed. I'm curious about why it was significant that the mission was a civilian one, a CIA one, and not a military mission. Very good question. And and that is a two-part answer. Because today, after 60 years, it was a military mission. That's been declassified. But back in the 1950s, it had to be civilian. If it was a military plane with a military pilot flying over a foreign hostile country, that would have been an act of war. Eisenhower did not want to provoke World War III. He wanted to gather intelligence from around the world, from the Soviet Union especially. And so he tasked the CIA, a civilian agency, to run the operation. So a pilot from the U.S. Air Force or from the Navy, Gary, they would have to resign their commission, would they, and then join the CIA as, as a civilian as part of this subterfuge? That is correct. It's known as sheep dipping. Uh, the CIA would recruit pilots out of the military. They would be sheep dipped into a civilian capacity. They would sign a secret agreement that would then allow them to go back into the military at a rank comparable to their peers after their missions were completed. Wow. So your dad was sheep-dipped, but he was no sheep. I mean, he's all action-adventure. For somebody to be working at that level of expertise and to be chosen for the secret mission, let's get to know your dad a little bit more, his background, his personality. Well, my father was born August 17, 1929, in southwest Virginia. He grew up in the height of the Depression. He was the one of six children, the other five being girls. He was the first of his family to go to college, graduated in 1950 from Milligan College in Tennessee. He immediately enlists in the U.S. Air Force. He wants to be a pilot from a very young age. He's always wanted to fly. He's now pursuing his dream. He enlists in 1950, gets his wings in 1952. He's an F-84 pilot between 1952 and 1956 when he's recruited by the CIA to join the U-2 program. And did you get a sense that he was particularly motivated by a sense of patriotism, or was it just a sense of adventure and achievement and just pushing his way out of Appalachia? 
all of the above. He <laughs> wanted to fly. That was his primary goal in life is to become a pilot. And he pursued that dream in the Air Force. He wanted adventure. He wanted to get out of the small town in Southwest Virginia that had no stoplights. I mean, it was a very, very rural community at the time. Two-lane roads from Washington, D.C. would take a full-day journey to drive there. So it was really off the beaten path at the time. And so dad wanted to explore. He wanted to get out of, of uh, that, that area. He wanted to see the world, have adventure, and he wanted to fly. These were incredibly dangerous missions, weren't they, Gary? And one of the details that has stuck out for me in researching this topic has been the suicide pill or the suicide silver dollar that every U-2 pilot was given before they took off. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, yes. Um, it was explained to the CIA U-2 pilots that if you're caught, you will be tortured. Here is a way to alleviate the pain and suffering. It was an optional device to take and an optional device to use in the event of torture, not in the event of capture. After my father bailed out of the airplane on the third strip search by the KGB, they find the needle on his person. My dad goes, oh, be very careful with that. He did not want to have a murder conviction on top of an espionage conviction. He is already in enough trouble as it is. The Soviets test this device on a dog. The dog dies in 20 seconds of asphyxiation. Basically, the poison on the needle would shut down the central nervous system, causing a lack of oxygen. When Khrushchev comes up during one of his press conferences and says, oh, look at these evil Americans. This is what they give their spy pilots to commit suicide with. This one wanted to live to see another day. From that moment on, the rumors, the misinformation, the speculation was dad disobeyed orders. He didn't commit suicide like he was ordered to. But again, there were no orders to take the pin, no orders to use the pin, completely optional at the pilot's discretion in the event of torture, not in the event of capture. Before your father took off on this momentous flight, I understand that there were constant problems and repairs with his U-2 aircraft. It was known as a hangar queen. What can you tell us about that? Yes, the, the, of all the planes to be picked for this mission, it just happened to rotate into the cycle, was Article 360. This is the plane that had barely landed near Itsugi, Japan, on a glider field, always seemed to have some type of a quirk where the fuel wasn't completely used during the missions, just little peculiarities that uh, pilots thought, you know, it, it, it was not the best plane to fly. And, of course, Dad gets this plane for his mission that goes some 2,900 miles, one of the longest missions ever attempted. Uh, it was basically the luck of the draw. The other plane he had flown in, its engines had reached capacity. It had to have an overhaul to make sure that everything was in flight-worthy order. When that plane came up on the rotation, did he just think to himself, oh, crap? <laughs> for, for the most part, I think you can say that. <laughs> it's like of all the planes to get, of all the ones to be chosen for this mission, the one longest ever attempted, I have to get the one that has a few problems now and then. <laughs> but let me uh, emphasize, though, just because the navigation system, the, the automatic uh, pilot malfunctioned during the flight, it did not affect or contribute to him being caught, captured, or shot down. I want to emphasize that he was at his assigned altitude of 70,500 feet, 
when the near miss of a Soviet SA-2 missile, an SA-2, exploded behind the tail section, knocking the plane out of the sky. It sounds, Gary, like the Soviet air defences were getting closer and closer to the U-2s in the sort of the weeks and the months and the previous flights. You have these stories about swarms of MiG fighters trying to get up to the altitude in previous months and failing. But as the day that your dad is about to fly comes closer, even the previous mission sounds like it was a pretty dangerous one. Did he ever talk to you about that sense of danger and that sense of fear that he might be the one to get hit? Well, um, yes, he did talk to me about it. But let me answer the first part of the question before we go into that. Between 1956, July 4th, the very first U-2 overflight of the Soviet Union through May 1st of 60 when my father was shot down, the Soviets were doing everything possible to capture a U-2, to shoot one out of the sky. For the first four years, they had the SA-1 missile, which could only go up to 60,000 feet. Over four years of research and development, they were able to improve their weapon system, created the SA-2 missile, And on May 1st, 1960, those were the missiles, the SA-2s, that were able to shoot down my father. In addition, they had uh, been trying to zoom up with their MiGs and new aircraft to intercept the U-2s and try to shoot them down. But because of the U-2s' flight characteristics of flying at 70,000 feet and above, the Soviets' airplanes could not maintain that altitude. And so they had to develop their weapon system through their missile program in order to shoot down a U-2, which they eventually did. In regards to talking with my father when I was a kid, my father died when I was 12 years old. So I was aware that he was shot down over the Soviet Union, imprisoned by the KGB, ultimately exchanged for a Soviet spy. But as a kid, I thought that was normal. I thought everybody's dad went through it. (laughs) I just didn't understand the significance of it until after he passed away. And by that time, it was too late to ask questions. So in college, I started doing all this research to find out the truth of what took place so I could answer questions that people had. Can you talk us through the sequence of events when he got hit with the surface-to-air missile and what happened next? Sure. My father's flying along at the assigned altitude of 70,500 feet over the city of Sverdlovsk. One of the targets was missile bases, SA-2 bases in that city or near that city that the CIA knew was being developed, but they did not know yet if they were operational. Dad found out firsthand that they were. Eight missiles were fired at the airplane. One of them explodes near enough to the tail section to cause structural failure. Down the airplane tumbles out of the sky. At the time, in 1960, it was easier to blame the pilot than to admit the Soviets were ahead of us in technology. We didn't have missiles that could reach 70,000 feet. Our radars were not as good as the Soviets. We couldn't pick up the U-2 as well as they could over their territory. So at the time, it's the middle of the Cold War. We're better than the Soviets. It's a race. It's a competition. There's no way that the American government's going to allow anybody to say that the Soviets are ahead of us in technology. And so when my father shot down over the Soviet Union by the near miss of a Soviet SA-2 missile at his assigned altitude, there was no flameout, there was no descent, there was no sabotage, all that misinformation, the rumors and speculation were circulating. Oh, gosh, what happened? It had to be the pilot's fault. It had to be a mechanical fault. The Soviets are behind us in technology. They can't have that ability. So it had to be something else that caused it. 
Well, fast forward two years, dad comes home, is debriefed by the CIA. They realize he was shot down at his assigned altitude. They clear him of any wrongdoing. He's put before a Senate Select Committee hearing. The senators in America, eight hours of deliberations. At the end of the session, they clear him. So he was cleared by the Senate. He was cleared by the CIA. But because of the misinformation of the time, the fake news, the rumors, the speculation, the misinformation, he was not cleared by the court of public opinion. And those rumors and speculation, thanks to the internet, where everything is true, (laughs) is still online and accessible to people who are doing research. So the majority of information out there is misinformation, especially from the time period. You have to go to my book, written in 2019. You've got to go to books by Chris Pocock, a UK author, Dragon Lady, The U2 uh, Towards the Unknown, and other books. He, me, researchers over the last 30 years now have found the declassified files, have talked to uh, a dad's uh, contemporaries and fellow pilots and friends, to government officials, both in America and in the Soviet Union. And we have put together the pieces of the puzzle so that the truth can now be told and is available for public consumption. And so what happens once he hits the deck? He, he bails out of the plane. He lands in a field. A farmer finds him. What happens next? He's at 70,500 feet. One of eight missiles explodes behind the tail section, knocks the tail section off, nose pitches forward, wings snap off into an inverted spin. He's being banged around. He's falling out of the sky. He's eventually able to climb out of the airplane at approximately 30,000 feet. He does not use the ejection seat. If he did, he would have severed his legs on the way out. So dad is able to crawl out of the airplane. He gets tied up with his oxygen hose. He has to struggle to break free of the oxygen hose, falls free of the airplane, and his parachute opens automatically at 15,000 feet. He starts to parachute down to the ground. He takes off his faceplate, which had frosted over. He couldn't see anything for quite a while. He's able to survey the countryside. He parachutes to the ground. He lands near the outskirts on the, of a collective farm. The farmers see this commotion. They see this parachute coming towards them. They rush up to him, help him with his backpack, his parachute, uh, his uh, helmet. They ask him questions in Russian. Dad doesn't speak Russian. He shrugs his shoulders, makes one of the farmers a little nervous. Who is this guy? Falls out of the sky, doesn't speak our language. A black car shows up. Two men get out, put him in the back seat. They take him to a holding area in the central part of town. There, the KGB in a few hours show up. They take him to Lubyanka Prison by airplane and armed guard. Uh, Lubyanka Prison is in Moscow. It's part of and adjacent to the KGB headquarters in downtown Moscow. Wow, what an extraordinary story. And what happens across the next couple of days, Gary? Well, between May 1st and May 5th, the Soviets say nothing. President Eisenhower in America, head of the CIA, Alan Dulles, in America. They're trying to figure out where's the plane? Where's the pilot? Why didn't he land in Boda, Norway? But so far, they've not been able to figure anything out. On May 5th, Khrushchev, premier of the Soviet Union, announces to the world a press conference, ah, comrades, we've shot down an American spy plane. But Khrushchev is laying a trap. He's baiting the Americans. He doesn't mention anything about the pilot, 
he also releases a fake photograph that's not of the U-2 wreckage. So the analysts in the CIA, Kelly Johnson, the designer of the airplane at Lockheed, they're saying this isn't a U-2. They must not have the pilot. He must have died. They must not have the wreckage. We can release our cover story. The cover story released on May 5th was that an unarmed weather research plane may have accidentally strayed across the border after the pilot had radioed trouble with his oxygen equipment. Once the cover story was in place, two days go by, Khrushchev comes back up to center stage, a press conference. Ah, comrades. He very gleefully announces to the world, not only did we shoot down the plane, but we also have captured the pilot, Francis Gary Powers, who was quite alive and kicking, and who's confessed to spying for the CIA. So that is basically the, the seven days of May 1st to May 7th when Eisenhower and Dulles were trying to figure out what happened and Khrushchev is getting ready to bait a trap for the Americans. This is just such an incredible story, Gary. And Khrushchev played it masterfully. I mean, he really made sure that the Americans were caught with their pants down. Can you talk to <laughs> us about the ramifications, uh, the embarrassment for Eisenhower and the CIA, the setbacks for the Cold War peace talks? Uh, what was the whole reaction and the fallout back at USHQ? Yeah. Uh, it was an embarrassment for President Eisenhower to have to admit that we, America, had a spy agency, the CIA, that we had been flying over the foreign hostile countries, including the Soviet Union, the last four years, which was against international law. He basically got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Eisenhower had two paths to, to take. He could have either blamed Alan Dulles, head of the CIA, for this rogue operation that was not successful, or he could take full responsibility for his actions. Eisenhower realizes that if he blames a subordinate, he blames Alan Dulles or the CIA, then Americans and the world uh, citizens would think that he as president was not in control of his own country. Instead, Eisenhower does the right thing. He holds a press conference. During his press conference, he calls uh, his actions, quote-unquote, a vital but distasteful necessity in order to avert another Pearl Harbor. And while all that was transponding, my dad's been stuck in a Russian prison cell the last seven days going through the interrogations. What is the interrogation involved, Gary? Three months of interrogations, of uh, bright spotlight, grueling questions, threats of death, no physical torture, no physical abuse. The Soviets wanted to show the world how nice they were, how humane they were. They wanted to show the world how they treated the spies that they captured in their country, purely propaganda reasons to further embarrass the U.S. Basically, they were trying to emphasize that the U.S. had executed the Rosenbergs. They'd given Rudolf Abel, a Soviet spy captured in New York City, a 30-year sentence. But after my dad's trial in August of 1960, the Soviets give my dad 10 years in prison because they're such a nice and hospitable country. They're trying to put their best foot forward to completely embarrass the U.S. And how does your father spend his captivity? During the 21 months of captivity, uh, after the interrogations, the interrogations went on for three months, 16-hour days, bright spotlight, grueling questions, no physical torture, thank goodness. After the trial... He's in Vladimir prison for 18 additional months, 21 months total of captivity. During that time, he writes letters home. He gets letters sent to him. He weaves 
makes rugs on burlap potato sacks with a cross stitch. He learns to play chess with his cellmate. His cellmate is a brilliant guy, Latvian, working for the British, caught smuggling goods and people in out of Latvia. He teaches dad to play chess. Dad picks it up. He's a fairly smart guy. After a week or two of playing chess, dad can move the pieces. He understands a little strategy. He understands how the pieces move, how to set up the board. He can play a game. Once that happens, their guard does the following. He sets up the chessboard. He turns around. He blindfolds himself. And he still beats my dad at chess. <laughs> my dad's thinking, wow, this guy is really smart. I bet he can remember everything I say. He might be a plant. And we do think after research that he was a plant, but there's no official evidence I've ever uncovered to confirm it. That is so interesting, Gary. Now let's talk about the steps that led up to your father's release. I understand that your father's dad had a role in this. Correct. Well, it's actually a combination of two individuals. Uh, James Donovan, who was the attorney representing Soviet spy Rudolf Abel, Donovan advocated that we should not give Abel the death sentence because we might be able to use him in the future for one of ours. Then, after my father shot down May 1st of 60, his dad, Oliver Powers, stubborn, cantankerous, coal miner, he's, he's going to do anything he can to get his boy back home. He wrote letters to Khrushchev. He wrote letters to Abel. He's going, exchange my son for Abel. Help my son out. I will gladly fill in for him if you release him. Anything he could do to get his boy back home. So he's writing these letters to a Soviet spy and the premier of the Soviet Union. Well, every letter that goes into Rudolf Abel's jail cell is read by the FBI. The FBI goes, look at Mr. Powers. We better tell our colleagues at the CIA that he's writing to Rudolf Abel. The CIA shows up at the shoe shop where he owned and worked to fix the minor shoes. He says, Mr. Powers, please don't meddle in our affairs. You can make it a lot worse for your son. We will take it from here. And sure enough, they contract James Donovan. James Donovan negotiates the spy exchange between my father and Rudolf Abel at the Glenacher Bridge, Potsdam, Germany. That exchange takes place February 10th of 1962. It must have been extraordinary when your father returns home to have been a humble pilot and suddenly he is at the centre of one of the most spectacular incidents in the whole of the Cold War. When my father was imprisoned in the Soviet Union, he was not allowed access to Western media. So he didn't really understand the extent of the misinformation, the rumors, the speculation, the negative press that was coming out, uh, saying that he should have killed himself, that he was a traitor, that he defected, that he landed the plane, that he spilled his guts, all this misinformation that was just not accurate. When he gets home, he is shocked to discover that this is what's been being said in the American press. But he was the type of person who didn't allow it to affect him. He knew that everything he did was the right thing to do. He knew that he followed his orders exactly as they were portrayed to him. So he got on with his life. He was able to get acclimated into society, continued to work for the CIA for about a year, training agents on what to do if captured, giving his experience going through interrogations on what to expect. 
He then gets a job with Lockheed Aircraft Corporation in 1963. He's a Lockheed test pilot flying the U-2s from 63 to 70. Then between 70 and 72, after his book is published, Operation Overflight, he's on the lecture circuit. 1972 to 1977, he's employed by radio and television stations in Los Angeles, flying for news, weather, and traffic reports, commentating on the traffic, the weather, and the local news. He dies August 1st, 1977 in a helicopter crash while working for NBC, KNBC Television out of Los Angeles. And that was when I was about 12 years old when he passed away. Uh, that must have been just, I can't even imagine how hard that would have been. And, well, it sucks at any age, but when you're 12 years old and your dad ends up being an internationally known controversial figure, <laughs> it has a few more layers to it. <laughs> This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. 
I'd love to talk to you about the drama of the actual release on Glenica Bridge. How did that go down? Because that's the basis for the Steven Spielberg 2015 film, Bridge of Spies. So must have had a little bit of drama in there. Yes. Um, I'm glad you referenced the movie. The uh, Spielberg movie came out in 2015, Bridge of Spies, uh, starring Tom Hanks as James Donovan, Austin Stoll as my father, Mark Reliance as uh, Rudolph Abel. Uh, Mark ends up winning an Oscar for his portrayal of the Soviet spy. I was a consultant on that movie, and it was great to be behind the scenes and help to answer questions and try to steer them in the right direction. In regards to the exchange scene, it's a cold, dark, foggy morning. Two men, spies, are on each side of the Glenacre Bridge. Rudolph Abel on the west, Gary Powers on the east. They're positively ID'd. They walk home to their respective freedoms. During the movie shooting... The bridge that's in the movie is actually the Glenacre Bridge. That is historically accurate. It's the bridge where the spy exchange took place. But it was not quite the same as in real life. Spielberg had to take his genius, input his version of what took place to bring it to the big screen. You uh, see behind the scenes people, staff members, putting fake snow on the bridge. They're wheeling out the guard shack. They have a sniper turret in the background with two guys with rifles looking down. They have the barbed wire, the, the lights, the gentleman going back and forth trying to figure out where Abel is and where this other guy is to be exchanged. It's very unique how Spielberg uses his genius to bring this historic event to life. What was going on in your dad's mind as he stood on the edge of the bridge? Yeah, I remember my dad telling me this. I asked him that question. Dad, what were you thinking? He basically said that he had made up his mind that he was not going to go back to a Soviet jail cell. If something happened and they said, it's called off, turn around, walk back with us, he was going to make a jump for it, run for it. He would have jumped into the uh, Havel River. He would have swam as best he could. He was a lifeguard in college, so he was a good swimmer. He was going to take his chances to get away versus going back. Fortunately, that did not occur. The exchange went off as planned, and uh, World War III did not break out. <laughs> How did he feel, Gary, about his captors when he looked back at that time that he spent in prison in Russia? Yeah, that's another good uh, insight here. Both my dad's view and the KGB guards that interrogated him, they had a mutual respect for each other because of the way they conducted themselves. The KGB guards respected my father for how he conducted himself while going through the interrogations. Uh, he did not spill his guts. He, did, he kept back quite a bit of information that he could have released. And my dad respected the guards because of the way they handled the interrogations. There were no beatings. I mean, yeah, there was grilling and in-your-face and threats of death and long nights and bright spotlights in your face. But there was no physical abuse. Gary, how do you feel, having a father like you do, how do you reflect on the man he was and what it's been like to grow up as his son? Well, I don't know anything different. <laughs> um, when I was younger, like I mentioned, I thought everybody's dad goes through something like this. That perception changed after he died on August 1st of 77. In high school, that was a very challenging time for me. 
I wasn't a jock. I wasn't a nerd. I didn't really have a place. I, I, I was known as the, the spy son. I was known as the, the son of the guy who died. I was trying to find my own being, my own bearing, and it was, it was challenging in high school. In college, I came out of my shell. Because of uh, folks uh, in the media, they'd call my mom, they'd want to talk to me, ask questions about my father, about the U2 incident. In high school and college, I didn't know the answers. So in college, I started doing this research to find out the truth of what took place so I knew how to answer these questions that people would ask of me. And over the last 35 plus years now, I've published Letters from a Soviet Prison, which was my first book, self-published my dad's letters to and from his family, as well as the journal he kept while incarcerated. In 2019, I published my second book through a publisher, Spy Pilot, Francis Gary Powers, The U-2 Incident, and a Controversial Cold War Legacy. That took 30 years of research, five years to write it. It sets the record straight. It takes dad's reputation from infamy and controversy in the 60s to that of an American hero today, who's been posthumously awarded the POW medal and the Silver Star by the U.S. government. Gary, your story is so poignant because it makes me reflect on the truth that all of us come up against, which is we never can really know our parents, and we have an inbuilt desire to learn everything about them because we're part of them. And in your instance, you weren't able to ask your dad questions once you were adult enough to grasp the enormity of his accomplishments. And so, yes, you have the primary document of his prison diaries. And I'm wondering what sort of conversations did you have with your mother over the years? Because your father must have confided in her and shared his fears and his concerns and his anxieties with her. So what sort of insights was she able to share with you? I was very fortunate to be able to talk with my mom when growing up, uh, especially in, in high school and college. She told me not to believe everything I read in the press, that uh, my, my dad did everything he was supposed to do, that there's a lot of fake information, fake news out there circulating and around. She was very defensive of my father, of her husband, um, would not take crap from anybody. She would get in their face if she needed to or felt it warranted. And I saw her do that on, a, on numerous occasions. <laughs> so I think that she instilled in me uh, a very important aspect of learning the truth and not to believe everything you read in the press. Gary, thank you so much for joining us on we didn't start the fire. It's been fascinating to meet you and it's been fascinating to hear the inside story of what really went on with your father. Thank you. You're quite welcome. Uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, anytime you want to do a follow-up, I'll be glad to do it. Whoa, Katie, what a story that was. Oh, incredible. I just, I'm blown away that we were able to talk to Gary Power's son. How incredible. And it was all those details for me, Katie, because both of us do a little bit of research, don't we, before recording an episode. But it was being taken by Gary almost every step of the way onto that plane, into the freefall, into the prison. It was extraordinary, the amount of detail. Oh, you know what my favorite detail was? Him learning to weave. I mean, I love that little <laughs> yeah. arts and crafts element. 
So, you know, not only is he an ace pilot and somebody who is incredibly skilled and filled with daring do, but he likes a little bit of the yarn and needle he can take to (laughs) weaving and... He has a little bit of uh, creativity going on, some artisanal skills. Absolutely. It makes me think, Katie, as you said at the start of the show, we are getting to the part of the song, we're getting to the part of the century where there are now living relatives of many of the people and the great events that we're going to talk about. It makes me think, Katie, that this is a little steer for future episodes for us. Yeah, so if any of you eager beavers out there want to give us a leg up and you know anybody who would be a good guest or you know someone who has a connection to any of the upcoming events, people, places, or things in the song, why don't you just reach out and touch at fireatcrowdnetwork.co.uk. We're all ears, people. In the meantime, if you would like another podcast to listen to, let us recommend The Secret History of Flight 149. Now, this is an absolutely incredible story. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. It sounds crazy, but in 1990, this really happened to the passengers and crew of BA Flight 149. What happened next has been dubbed the most shocking government cover-up of the last 30 years. Journalist Stephen Davis has been reporting on this for three decades, and now he's made it into a series. Listen to The Secret History of Flight 149 now, wherever you get your podcasts. And next week, the topic will be Singman Rhee. Tom, he was the president of the Republic of Korea, or as I like to refer to it as, rock. <laughs> and also, Katie, it seems he was quite the nefarious character. I've got the feeling we're going to go down some very deep and dark and dingy places next week. Well, I'm wearing my protective clothing to account for any untoward spillage. Galoshes on. We'll see you next time. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. 
I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.